All right, well, let's turn, uh, let's turn our Bibles open to Romans chapter 8, or your bulletin open if you want, uh, chapter 3, sorry. I quote Romans 8 so much, it just comes out naturally. Uh, some of you who were here yesterday working, you may have noticed something. I didn't help. There's a reason why I don't help much on work days, and I don't want to be uh, too prideful about it. It gets down to this. I'm really bad at things like that. I'm bad. I, I tend to make things worse. I've got a lot of stories about things that I've made worse. Um, one, I, one Saturday, I was taking a shower, and uh, the water was coming out real sporadically because there's a lot of calcium in our water, and so it was all clogged, and I was thinking, I just need to take that shower head off, soak it in some CLR, get all the calcium out, put it back on. So I reached up. All I did was reach up and twist the shower head. That's all I did. But instead of unscrewing, it just broke right off in my hand. So now I'm looking at this, and I think, I know what I'm doing today, Phineas. I, I'm going to fix a shower head. And how hard can that be, right? And so I get dressed, I start looking at it. Huh, the pipe broke. That's problematic. And there's no way to fix it. It's just one long piece going back into the wall. I know what to do. I'll go behind the wall, cut a big hole in the wall in my closet, get to the pipes, still don't really figure it out. Remember to go turn off the water. Unscrew the pipe, pull it out, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with this either. Jumping ahead 10 hours, I call a plumber. Now, the plumber, um, I ask around for a plumber I can afford, and I get a, a referral to a guy named Joe Hummel. Uh, he was 19 years old at the time, but uh, he's still my plumber 10 years later. He's a great guy. He was a TCC student and had done his plumber's, you know, internship under a mentor, apprenticeship under a mentor, and uh, just the nicest, kindest guy. Eagle Scout, that kind of fellow, you know, respectful. And he comes over to the house, and he starts working, and he doesn't, he doesn't mock me. I appreciate that. And uh, so he gets out, and he takes the pieces out, and every now and then kind of chuckles at what I tried. And, and then he, uh, he's out in the yard soldering with a, with a you know, welding flame. And, and I just walked by, and I said, huh, I wouldn't have done it that way. And without even looking up, in the gentlest, most respectful way possible, he said, well, Mr. Jones, that's because you don't know what you're doing. He was right. Um, there's a question that comes up a lot of times when we talk about the atonement and the cross and the, the links to which Jesus went to save us, the links to which God the Father went to bring us into unity with him. And that question is, why? Why was all that necessary? Couldn't God just forgive us? Why, why, why did it hurt so much? Why did it have to be such a big deal? And the answer the Bible gives is it was necessary. Uh, when, when Jesus was raised from the dead and Mary is crying in the garden, she can't figure out uh, where he is, the angel appears to her and says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Did he not tell you that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised again? 
uh, when the disciples, uh, two of the disciples were on the road to Damascus, and Jesus comes and walks alongside them, but, but veils their eyes so they don't know who he is, and they begin talking. And then when Jesus finally begins to speak, he says, You slow to learn. Why are you so ignorant of the Scriptures? He says, did he not tell you, did not all the law and the prophets tell you it was necessary for him to die at the hands of men and be raised again? Why was it necessary? We stand out apart from it and we say, we wouldn't have done it that way. Well, really, we stand apart from it and say we wouldn't have done it at all. But certainly not that way. And the answer that the angels give to us, the answer that Jesus himself gives to us, is if you don't understand why it was necessary, you don't understand it at all. If you don't think the cross was necessary, then you just don't know what you're doing. You just don't know what you're talking about. And so today we're going to talk about the necessity of the cross. I want to take a little bit back and just do a review of what we're doing here. Uh, the first week of this series, I preached on the centrality of the cross. That if you don't understand the cross, if the cross is not in the middle of your understanding of, of the Bible and of Christianity, then you end up telling half-truths that are more harmful than good. And then we preached on the Father's sacrifice in the cross because I think the biggest mistake we still make is to think of, of God the Father being the bad guy. He's mean, he's, he's austere, he's distant, and, and he threw a big thunderbolt of God's wrath at, at earth and Jesus jumped in front of it and absorbed it. And he's the good guy, and that could not be further from the truth. Then the next week, John then preached on the, the example of the cross, how loving anybody involves being crucified and, and dying to your own desires. And then Caleb Harlan stepped in for me when I had no voice and, and, and preached a great sermon on the, on the covering of the cross, how Jesus is covering us from everything, uh, all the harm that our sin deserves. And last week, we preached on the sacrifice of the cross. Uh, we looked at the sacrifice of the cross and, and the lengths that Jesus went to to save us. And now we ask ourselves the question, why? Why was that necessary? And, and the answer I want you to see is that the nature of sin and the character of God demands the blood sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin because of the nature of sin in the character of God. Once you understand why the cross was necessary, you'll understand both of those things. Please stand as we read from Romans chapter 3, the verses 19 through 26. J.I. Packer says, Romans is the heart of the gospel. Uh, in the Bible, the Romans is the heart of the gospel. And, and Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26 is the heart of the heart of the gospel. So, I don't know, that's a pretty good introduction. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ 
for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all of our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. Was the cross necessary? Yes. It was necessary because of the nature of sin and because of the character of God. Uh, The first thing I want you to see is the nature of sin because we don't get it. And honestly, uh, most of the illustrations and explanations of the cross that we heard as children made it worse. Uh, You may have heard things like, you know, one lie. If you just tell one lie, then then you you deserve to burn in hell forever. Uh, Yeah, no, that's... um, yeah, that's, that's not helpful. Uh, we, we need to understand, that we're, we're grown-ups, we need to understand that the grown-up nature of sin. And, and the first thing that I want you to see is that it's, when the Bible uses the word sin, it's talking about original sin. It's talking about this power that has enslaved us. If you look in this text, it says we were under sin. When it uses the plural sins, it's talking about the actions. And that tends to be the only thing we think about, right? Uh, you know, the, the stealing, the coveting, the lying. Uh, those are all sins. And the relationship to sin is like the relationship of a runny nose and a cough uh, to the flu, right? The, the flu is not a body ache. The flu is not a headache. The flu is not a runny nose. The flu is a disease that is inside you. And all of those things are symptoms, right? Right, Evan? Am I close? Okay. Uh, The disease, though, has to be gotten out or run its course. And once it runs its course, all the symptoms go away. You can treat the symptoms, right? You can can take your NyQuil. You can, uh, you know, take your Tylenol and, and, and feel better. But... Until the disease is gone, the symptoms are coming back. Sin, we are under the power of sin, and that sin is deep inside our hearts. Uh, There's a writer who's also an Episcopalian priest, uh, or an Anglican priest, uh, for the New York Times, and she said this. She said, In college, through a string of failed relationships, I came to understand Sin is something more fundamental than rule-breaking. It was more subtle, more under the hood of my consciousness. It was the ways I would casually manipulate people to get my way. It was a hidden but obnoxious need for approval. It was that part of me that could not rejoice in a friend's big award or accomplishment, even as some other part told her, Congratulations! My favorite definition of sin comes from author Francis Spuford. He says that most of us in the West think of sin as a word that basically means indulgence or naughtiness. Instead, he calls sin the human propensity to mess things up. 
Only he doesn't use the word mess, and his word is probably closer to the truth of things. It's a propensity. It's a, it's a deformation in our heart. When I would, uh, was raising my boys, I remember uh, one of the times I had to discipline one of them, and, and what, what it was for is he was watching Brundage unwrap presents, and Brundage wasn't doing it fast enough for him. And so he would re- grab the present away on Brundage's birthday, and he ripped it open, and he, he was holding it up like it was his, and, and I had to take him back to his room and say, Son, you know that feeling you get when you're watching somebody else unwrap presents? And it kind of makes you mad that you didn't get one? That feeling is the power of sin. And that's what caused you to grab it. And that's what we got to deal with. And that's what only Jesus can deal with. And that's why we pray that he will give you a new heart. Deal with that, that problem, that deformation inside of us that grows out into all kinds of actual practical sins. That's the nature of sin. Why, then we ask, why is the Bible so adamant about sin causing death? Why does God have to punish sin with death? Um, and, And asking that question, you have to understand the nature of sin. Sin is walking away from God. Sin is turning away from God to independence. It's, I'll do it myself. It's not something we teach children, right? You don't teach children to think of themselves first. The the first time I got caught uh, for saying something bad to my sister, no one taught me, hey, Ricky, what you need to do is lie. Like, I knew how to lie. I knew how to be selfish. You know, my kids knew how to steal each other's presents. We didn't have to teach them those things. That independence, that desire to put ourselves first. Death comes from sin because God is the source of life. He is the only source of life and light. Death is the fruit or the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. Death is the wage of sin for the same reason that if a lamp could, if one of these lamps could take on consciousness and, you know, hop away like the little Pixar lamp. When, when it got so far from the wall that it unplugged from the socket, it would go out. The wages of the lamp walking away from the socket is going out. It's extinguishing, right? When a limb falls from a tree, a limb, you know, might still look green. I mean, they, we cut some bushes down, or they, y'all, cut some bushes down yesterday. I'm so happy you cut those bushes down. And But you know what? All the leaves on those branches are still green. They look like they're alive, but we know they're dead. They've been cut away from life. They just aren't smart enough to know they're dead yet. In, in the same way, sin cuts us away from the, the stump. It cuts us away from life. And we have to be reunited to him to have life. And some of you are saying, wait a minute, you've used that illustration before. Yes, I have. And I use that illustration as a reason why you, have, you need to be part of the church. You need to be reunited to Christ's body. You see, sin separates us from his body. Regeneration and faith bring us back into his body where life flows through us. That's why sin causes death. 
Not because God gets so angry that you told one lie that he's going to pour out wrath and fury upon you forever and ever and just kind of enjoy watching you suffer. God himself says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But if you insist on getting as far away from me as possible, I will let you go. I will let you go. When Jesus was asked by the uh, people of the Gerizines, they saw that he had healed this, this maniac and it scared them. And they asked him to leave. And so Jesus got in the boat and left. If you want away from him, he will let you go. And that causes death. So that's the first reason why the cross is necessary because somehow God had to die for us if he wanted to be back reunited to us. That, that death had to be paid. And so Jesus unites himself to us to, to pay that death, to die for us. And so somehow, mysteriously, we die with him and in him so that as he's resurrected, we receive life. It's the nature of sin. Sin messes things up. God made things right. That's the first reason, but that's not all the reason. The second reason is the character of God. The question gets asked a lot, why can't God just forgive? Why can't he just get over it? He commands us to forgive. Why can't he just forgive? Well, first of all, he doesn't just command us to forgive. What does he command us to do? Forgive as we've been forgiven, correct. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We forgive because we have been forgiven. If God had been forgiven, I'm sure he would be able to just look over it. But he's never been forgiven because he's never done anything wrong. He is just. He is holy. He is righteous. Listen to how he describes himself in, a, in a, this beautiful passage in Exodus 34. He, he appears to Moses and he, he makes his goodness come before Moses. And, and he says, Moses, I'll let you look at my hind parts. Who knows what that means? Uh, and uh, it really is baffling. And he calls out his name, and he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, God himself calls out his name, declares his name before Moses, and says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Isn't that interesting? How does he do that? How does he forgive without clearing the guilty? Why can't he just forgive? First of all, forgiveness is a whole lot harder than we make it out to be. If you've ever had anything to really forgive, you know that. And forgiveness in our souls, you know this, forgiveness in our souls demands some form of justice. When people get justice, you are able to forgive. When people don't receive justice, forgiveness is a, is a slow, grinding, striving for something that, that you want to not be angry anymore, but somehow inside of you, you feel like you have to be punishing this person by not liking them anymore. But once justice is given out, it's, it's, it's easier to forgive. Why, can't, why does God have to be just? 
Why does he have to be righteous? That question, again, betrays a misunderstanding. Justice isn't God, something God is, decides to be or not be. It's who he is. When, when we say justice, we mean being like God. A just judge judges fairly according to what he sees. It's, it's unjust, it's unrighteous to condemn an innocent man or to justify a guilty man. God condemns that in Deuteronomy. Justice is what he is. Asking God why he has to be just is like asking a circle, why do you have to be round? Why can't you be square? Now, if you're a sophomore philosophy student, you love that question. But nobody else cares because you know the second you stop being round, you stop being a circle. The, the second, you know, why can't red be blue? Red is red. That's, that's what it is. Why does God have to be just? Because he is. He is justice. He is righteousness. And if he can't, if, if a just person cannot justify the ungodly, can't declare the ungodly righteous, then he has to do something. He has to make us righteous first. And so he puts us in Christ, and he punishes our sins in him. So that now he declares us righteous because we've been united to him and his righteousness is given to us. That's why he's not clearing the guilty. He's made us innocent. He's made us perfect according to the call to worship. By one sacrifice, he has perfected those who are being made perfect. And so if you are in Christ, you are perfect. And if you are not in Christ, you are still under your sin. And then once we're perfected by that sacrifice, he declares us righteous. So that's, that, that still doesn't answer the question. We have the nature of sin that demands death because it's walking away from Jesus. We have the, the nature of God, the, the justice of God, but it still doesn't answer the question, why did it have to happen? Why was it necessary? That answers the question why it was hard. But... And let's just be honest, right? We, he could have just not done it. He could have just not created us. Right? He could have just sent us all into condemnation. He could. Well, theoretically he could, but actually he couldn't. He couldn't. Because not only is God just, he is also love. And love demanded that he do, did it. His personality, his character demanded, his heart demanded that he save us. It's fascinating. I don't really understand it. You don't understand it either if you really think about it. And this is why all the illustrations I have of the cross fall short. Uh, you know, the, the closest illustration I have, one I use in the new members class, is about... You know, this judge uh, who is, is serving in, the, in China and in the, in the desert and Middle East and, and uh, the, the, the penalty there for stealing water is, is 40 lashes and, and his mother has a fever one night and she stumbles out to the well and she steals water. She's caught red-handed. The judge is caught. He knows that if he just, you know, lets her go, then the whole city will riot and, and the, the rations of water will be 
uh, just thrown away, and there will be not enough water to survive the summer, and so he has to punish her. But his heart is torn, right? And, and he, he doesn't want to kill his mother. He doesn't think she'll survive 40 lashes. And so he declares her guilty, and he has her tied to the post in the middle of town. And then he takes off his robes, and he wraps his arms around his mother. And he tells the, uh, the executioner or the, the, ju- uh, the soldier, make every blow fall on my back so he can both be just and save his mom. You know the only problem I find with that illustration? You would do that, right? You would sacrifice your own back, a little pain, for your mom's life. I hope you would. But if you understand the gospel, you would never do that. You see, all of our sins were against God. All of our sins, His love demands punishment. I mean, because all of the things you've done, all the lies you've told, all the things you've stolen, all the times you've looked on the Internet to, to, to use one of his daughters or one of his sons for your own pleasure, you were using his children, you were hurting his children in front of his face. So the gospel is more like this. It's more like y'all just hate this sermon. That's understandable. And you hate it so much that you get together and you decide, firing me is not enough. You're going to burn my house down. And so you go to my house and you set it on fire and you burn it to the ground, not knowing that my children are in there. And, and, And three of the four of them die. And now you're all in jail together. And the judge has set the the bail, the bond, at $4 million. And you're looking at each other going, now what? And Jonathan's like, well, you know, Ricky's a good friend. Let's call him. And so I come down to the jail. Because I want to look at you and laugh at you and make fun of you because you're going to get what you deserve for burning down my house and killing some of my children. And then Brian says... Will you bail us out? Will I bail you out for sinning against me? No. A, I'm really angry at you right now. B, I don't have $4 million on me. And Brian says, well, in my business, I've gotten to know some shady characters. And I happen to know that you could sell one of your children on the black market. There's a, there's a big price for young boys. Would you sell one of your children on the black market to get us out of jail for sinning against you? No. Isn't that just ridiculous, just atrocious? Can you even imagine requesting something so beyond comprehension? But you see, Jesus, God, the the second person of the Trinity, the, the Son of God, He fell in love with us so deeply that He was willing to die for sinning against Him just so He could be with us. 
heaven, according to John 17, heaven would not be heaven for Jesus if he wasn't there with us. It's all, I, I can kind of see it in my mind. There, the, the Father comes to the Son before time in this Trinitarian relationship of, of loving each other, and he says, Son, I want to give you a gift. I want to give you a bride. I want you to have a wife. And the son's like, yeah, let's get to making that. And so they start thinking up all the qualities that they want his bride to have. And, and they're imagining, not, not actually creating it yet, but just imagining what it could be like. And then the son goes, you know, Dad, to make this wife perfect, I think she should freely choose to love me. I want her to have free will. Dad looks at him and goes, are you sure? Yeah. Okay, let's look at what that's going to entail. And they see the future. They see how we're going to turn away from him and how there's going to be wars and, and murders and using each other and exploitation and just awful things because of this free will that he gives us. And they see the cross and what it's going to take to bring us back and change us. And the Father says, you want to marry that? And Jesus says, or the Son of God says, oh yeah, I'll do anything for her. And the Father says, her? Her. I will give my life for her. Knowing what we were going to be like. We were chosen in Christ from before the foundations of the world. That's the gospel. That's why it's necessary. That's why the cross is necessary. Not because we're so bad, not because he's so just, but because he is so loving that heaven would not be heaven without us. That is the gospel. Please receive it. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning overwhelmed, just in awe of a justice we never experience and of a love that we would have never dreamed of. And I pray, Lord, some of us, it's just hard for us to receive love. We want to keep earning it. We want to keep deserving it. And I pray that we would lay those silly dreams down of ever earning your love and just receive it today. Father, it sounds too good to be true. But I pray that it would melt our hearts. Amen.